I wish to introduce a new spiritual endeavor this afternoon to the assembly, or in the language of the Puritans, they would perhaps call it a holy exercise. You may have heard of the Cripplegate sermons that Richard Owen Roberts has republished some years ago, which contain what was known as the morning exercises, during which English believers would gather early in the morning in fields often to hear the Word of God preached so that their souls would be strengthened to live out the day faithfully. In more modern parlance, using shortened language, we could label this endeavor the URCAC project. That sounds very official, of course. I give that to you to catch your attention. I will give you now the expanded version of that same idea. It would translate into this. The Upper Room Christian Assembly Catechism. Now before you respond too quickly in your mind to the term catechism, give me an opportunity to explain what this spiritual endeavor is. I will give this same project to you, this same holy exercise to you, in a more scriptural idiom, and hence in a more agrarian image. And we could call what we're about to embark on roots of righteousness. Roots of righteousness. Indeed, this is a project that is something that, in my view, any pastor as they say, worth his salt, any pastor who understands the nature of his calling will be keen on fulfilling. And I would simply observe in passing that over the years of ministry, whatever they amount to now, probably approximating 40, I would think, but I didn't take the time to try to calculate it all out in the preparation of this message. But over the years, I have not only wanted to do something like what we're going to begin this afternoon, but have, in fact, given some installments along those lines. So in other words, back in April of 1995, if you were attending this meeting at that point, you received a series of messages on the canon of Scripture. And I recall very vividly what the motivation for that series of teachings were. At that time, the assembly was significantly larger. There were more men. There were older men and younger men. There were little boys and little girls and mothers bearing children and all the rest of it. And I will be straightforward with you. I was, as I have been, I wish not to sound negative, but I must tell what's on my heart and speak the truth as it comes to my spirit with sincerity, I was grieved, troubled. I was attentive to, if you like that term better, I was attentive to what appeared to me to seem to be the lack of spiritual connection with particularly some of the men in the assembly. And extending beyond the men in the assembly, I was therefore also concerned that the church in general, was experiencing the degree of hunger and thirst for God's Word that I felt 
would represent a good Christian spirit and would bring people to the meeting to really be interested in what was going to be taught on that particular Sunday. And while I was thinking about how would I go about tapping or priming that spiritual hunger, I reflected on my own experience as a young believer, and it came to my mind immediately that I've gradually gained and learned and waded into the world of Scripture, and I have been captured by the beauty of the Bible and its substance and significance and weight and glory and its various dimensions and that range of things. And that, for me, has come through an initial hunger and thirst and a good degree of study and the collection of books and reading and digging into these matters. And so recognizing that, I felt, well, perhaps I will offer that experience to the church. And I thought, where would one begin if one were to bring forth that sort of experience? And perhaps I would say that in a personal sort of way, meaning in my personality mode, I sort of, I suppose, kind of, you know, want to be thorough, I guess is maybe the way you state it. And I thought, well, we'll go all the way back to the canon of Scripture. I mean, I'd like to represent to the saints that the books of the Bible have a story behind them that is quite remarkable, that establishes their veracity and answers the question as to why these 66 books and none others, either of books that came into literature subsequent to the biblical era or even contemporary books that were written in that same time frame. Why these 66 books? And I felt that understanding these sort of things would draw the interested person into an appreciation of the Bible that they hold. And so we gave those teachings. I will add anecdotally, I don't recall the time frame of this particular effort, but along the way, we had a Bible study in our home. We called it the Neighborhood Bible Study, and we sent our children out around the neighborhood, inviting everyone you know, within some distance to come and participate. And there again, when I thought of how would I minister to my neighbors, and some of my family came to those Bible studies, as a matter of fact, more of my family than the neighbors, to be honest with you. But in any event, we had people there. And once again, I opted to go all the way down to the introduction of what the Bible is. We went right to the name Biblos and where that comes from and where Papri comes from. And I do think it was interesting, and I still have the PowerPoints for that. It's a quite thorough study and would stand on its own two feet for anybody who wants to understand that level of biblical background and introduction. To what extent it's lasted in the hearts of those that heard those teachings or the canon of Scripture, which was taught to this assembly, is not so much in my power to determine. I can sow in water. It is up to you in relationship to God. There is a mysterious working of wills in that, in which God is certainly sovereign. I do clearly state that, but clearly the scriptures also teach that whosoever will, let him come.
and let him drink freely of the water of life. You know the saying, you can lead the Christians to water, but you can't make them drink. And I don't even know if God literally makes you drink, but I'll leave that to him. My point being is I don't give the increase. That's not in my ministerial calling description. Well, we follow those sets of teachings on the canon of Scripture in this assembly by teaching on the divine covenants beginning in February of 1996. And that was a series of teachings as well. I won't digress because it's not my point to give you an anthology of what has been taught in the past and the reasons why. But I'm simply pointing out to you that what we're going to embark on as the Lord enables us beginning today is something that has always been on the back burner for me. Indeed, as I'm indicating, I've pulled it to the front burner and stirred it up a little bit and served some out. But for whatever reasons, the nature of my experience as a pastor hasn't included the kind of systematic outlay of various endeavors that I might have otherwise wished to have accomplished. I do think we've covered some good ground. We've had some series that have been taught and completed and that sort of thing. But I've had different ideas as how to accomplish some of these things. I once entertained the idea of starting a ministerial school, believe it or not. I had a couple of other older brothers who have since gone on to be with the Lord that in my mind, you know, I were, was going to tap their abilities and their heart and see if that would work out. Um, I fully admit it wasn't the mind of the Lord. I don't, I don't feel bad about that. It was something I was exploring. Um, and so what we're doing now, what I'm starting now and going to be describing to you, I want to state that one could do this in a Bible study sort of format, but uh, I don't think it's the mind of the Lord as I pray and reflect on achieving this objective. I don't think it's the mind of the Lord that I would sort of shift this over into the Bible study format. I'll state here for your interest that I am praying about beginning a Bible study once again, probably on a Saturday morning. Um, I don't know what the frequency would be. I don't know exactly the timing. I don't have all that figured out. I've encouraged you to pray about it as well, and I'm sure you are. Um, but what I would relate to you is the way I would characterize one of the important purposes for such a Bible study would be outreach. And what I mean by outreach in that context is you know, providing an interactive experience that would be appealing to people that you know and might invite and that the Lord would send. And rather than me stand and teach, which is certainly valuable, but rather than have that format, I'm of the mind to have a more interactive conversational format. And therefore, this sort of project doesn't fit that description as you will discover what this project is as I explain it to you. Now, everything sort of aids whatever else we do. I mean, we derive benefit from just learning the Bible in general, so I'm not stating that you put everything in these hermetically sealed boxes and whatever we're doing here just does not belong in a Bible study. I mean, you know, we might still discuss some of these things, but in a different way. What do I mean by the upper room Christian Assembly Catechism. Well, I use the word because it's a perfectly fitting word. To catechize, 
means to teach by word of mouth wouldn't seem to me to be such a bad thing. I mean, I'm not going to be up here miming the Bible. I'm not going to be up here putting on dramatic plays and various other forms of multimedia or drama skits to communicate the Bible to you. I'm going to teach in the classic way of opening up the scriptures and proclaiming its truth to your souls. Now, there is a particular motive to the catechizing version or effort of one opening one's mouth and preaching the Word of God, and that comes from the etymology of the Word itself. Whether it's the verbal form to catechize or the nominal form, catechesis, they both come from a Greek term that is a compound word, the first part won't surprise you, it's kata, kata. The preposition that means down, but all Greek students know that that same prefix is a term that heightens or enforces the idea that follows it. Let me first give you the second word in katakisis, and then I'll explain why it's intensified. It actually comes from the word eke, you hear that in there, catechesis, kateke, you hear it in there, it's Latinized. Catechesis is a Latinized pronunciation of a Greek word. And so we get the word echo from that Greek term, eche. And that means to sound. And so what it means, literally, it means to sound down. But kata isn't so much talking about a locational concept, it's talking about an emotional concept. It's a heightened, intensified version of sounding. And I think it's beautiful that we can use the concept of echo because we should just be speaking what God speaks back to God's people. We become the sounding boards, as it were, of what God speaks from heaven. And we help you to hear that. And so, catechizing is the effort of intensely and purposely and thoroughly speaking forth the truths of God's Word. That is what it means to catechize. It is a beautiful thing. It is an honored tradition throughout the eras of church history. We have numerous representations of this effort, some of which you will have heard about, some of which I would recommend you become more acquainted with, once again, I will digress to say that with our effort that once was located at Faith Life, in which we were inviting a number of other people in addition to our own members, and indeed we did have a number of people sign up to participate in our sort of Faith Life Christian community environment, the full story is, the footnote to that is that Faith Life decided to sunset that whole endeavor. So we have to rework that, which God willing, we will. But one of the things, if you noticed that we were going to do in the advanced Bible study aspect of that endeavor, and some of this is already up there and prepared and ready to go, and we had a sign-up sheet, and I might have said to you that I have to follow up on this, as a matter of fact, is someone you know, signed up for the basic Bible study. And I don't think it's a joke. I think it's literally somebody saw it and uh, and signed up. So I got, probably have to communicate to this young lady and 
tell her, you know, sorry, but, you know, we'll, whatever, we'll cover that in a responsible way. But what I was stating to you is what we were going to use as a structure for an advanced Bible study course was the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, I'm assuming that most of you will at least be familiar with those words. Whether or not you know what it is, is not so much what I'm counting on, but I'm stating that the spiritual exercise of catechizing God's people is an honored tradition. Now, there are traditions that maybe have been in the churches that we would do better to bypass. It's obviously my opinion that we should not bypass this tradition altogether. So let me explain why I'm embarking on what we will call the Upper Room Christian Assembly Catechism, which, as the Lord allows, we will be able to anthologize, that is to say, these teachings will be recorded, and God willing, be available for members at any point, and even others who aren't members of the church, and so they can draw off a systematic presentation of God's truth and ratchet themselves up to a good understanding of the Word of God. This, is, will, this will benefit the young, this will benefit new members, this will sharpen anybody's understandings, and it is exactly what ministry is supposed to do, and I intend to support that claim to some extent in this particular introductory set of remarks. But once again, let me pass on to you some of the well-known standards, some of the well-known accomplishments under the discipline of catechizing. I've already sort of given you one little group. We'll look at the Westminster group. This was a Puritan effort within which a number of Puritan scholars, godly men from England and Scotland and elsewhere, mostly in the British Isles, gathered together and worked out some statements that were designed to help train God's people in the understanding of the Word. And what was produced, among some other things, but the better known documents that were produced by this effort in the 17th century were the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1646, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was put together in 1646 and into 1647, and then the Westminster Larger Catechism in 1647. Another representation of catechizing effort is known as the Three Forms of Unity. Now, the Westminster confessions and catechisms and the three forms of unity are primarily known in reformed groups and maybe even you could narrow that down to Presbyterian groups but it would be shared by those that have a different ecclesiology in terms of their structure their ruling structure than just the Presbyterian form uh, John Owen was a Congregationalist and he would have imbibed these concepts and efforts and um, presentations and so on, you know, of the Westminster standards and, and these three forms of unity. But I want you to know that this does cover a wide swath of church history to this very day. And many, many godly men and women 
over the span of time. They would have been acquainted with these standards, these teaching instruments. So I'll give you the three forms of unity. They are the Belgic Confession that was written in 1559. Obviously has something to do with Belgium. Guido de Brez is considered the primary author of that. The Heidelberg Confession of 1563, born in Germany, obviously. And then the Canons of Dort, which were put together in 1618 and 1619. And what's interesting about the three forms of unity is that this synod in the Netherlands, in Dort, not only produced the canons that we know as the canons of Dort, but they also adopted this concept of, of um, confessing or affiliating with these three forms of unity. So they took the Belgic Confession that they already had and the Heidelberg Confession, which they already had. They added the canons of Dort as a response primarily to the rise of an Arminian uh, theology. And they put these three forms of unity together as standards for teaching and standards for discerning who are in the faith that we embrace. It's a way of protecting the flock. Just a couple of other examples. There are numerous examples of these sorts of confessions or catechizing instruments that typically ask questions and then give answers. That's a standard way of um, approaching this task. Among the Baptists, there's a very well-known confession of faith known as the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. And incidentally, some of these confessions, or really all the ones that I've just mentioned, they, you know, they appreciate the standards that went before them. They may not hold to every distinctive that a particular standard advocates, and so they take much that they agree with and they sort of particularize it to their, their own convictions. Do you understand what I mean? So Baptists don't baptize children, but most of the Presbyterians and the Reforms were paedo-baptist, so they have a confession that is very similar to the Westminster Confession of Faith, but then they particularize it, as it were, they adjust it to fit their own convictions. Well, I'm going to sort of leap out of the Reformed world and tell you that in the world of Catholicism, they also catechize, and that might be an association in some of your minds because maybe you were saved out of Catholicism or you're just generally familiar with religious jargon and you associate a catechism with Catholicism. And I first sought to establish thus far in this teaching that that is a guilt by association faux pas. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you can't just say because in your mind, you know, you know how they do this, this silly exercise where they say, rapid response. I say a word and you say what you first think. And this is considered an interview. It's so juvenile and nonsensical that it's a waste of time. But if you're given to that sort of thing, I say catechism, you say Catholic. As if we've accomplished anything. You've done nothing to say that you work off a knee jerk and there's some language in there you don't want to be. So, don't work off a knee jerks. Uh, knee jerks. Um, there is what's known as the CCC, literally. But that's partly why I said this is going to be the URCAC, 
I'm sort of doing it on purpose. There is what's known as the CCC. It's the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And it's sort of hard to nail down a date for its production. It is the case that there was sort of an advocating and refining of it in 1992 by Pope John Paul II. But certainly its doctrinal stances harken back to the Second Vatican Council of 1962 through 1965 and prior to that to the First Vatican Council of 1869 through 1870. And with some credibility, Catholics certainly would argue that actually you need to go all the way back to the Nicene Creed or even the Apostles' Creed of early church era times. Now, if you were to get Philip Schraff's three-volume work or something similar on the creeds of Christendom, then you would read through all this historical data and enter into that world. Incidentally, I'm not going to be teaching Schraff's book. You know, that's not what we're going to be doing. Not that I'm opposed to anyone reading and studying it. I think that's a worthwhile thing to do, but that's not what we're doing. When I was in the Catholic Church... Prior to being born again, my family, um, last name Trudeau, you might expect, you know, coming down from Canada, my father's father was raised, I suppose. I, I don't know exactly. I probably should know. Did he come from? I think he was raised in Canada, right? Yeah. You know, so French-Canadian is the point I'm trying to state. That's sort of my background. And um, so my family was, I was born into a Catholic practicing family and I attended what is known as CCD when I was young and guess what I was catechized into the Catholic faith to the extent I paid any attention which I don't remember how much I did I did learn the three forms of vain repetition known as the Our Father the Hail Mary and the Glory Be and I can state them to this day and I learned another you know a number of other things the, the blessing of the throats and uh, you know, that was a good one. And, um, you know, the blessing of the vehicles and, oh, I'm sure a number of other things. But CCD, and it's still something that is exercised in a Catholic setting, is known as the Confraternity of Christian Doctrine. And it goes all the way back to 1562. So that's just a sampling of confessing Christian religious churches religious peoples, Christian actions, you know, people over time striving to be good Christians. You can use your own discernment as to what they're all about and whether they have any rights to call themselves Christians, but certainly many of the Reformed and the Puritans and the Dutch Reformed and the Huguenots and so many others over church history, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ that you would do well to emulate, by the way, in many respects. You know what I'm trying to say? They're not your little brothers and sisters, so many of them, spiritually speaking. They're your elder brothers and sisters that have a few things to teach us, and they were catechized. It's not a bad thing. You've heard about family worship or the family altar. That also comes out of this environment, by the way. And it's just the concept of having a structured, purposeful um, exercise, endeavor, plan by which to train your children in the Word of God. 
And if we're not doing this in church, if the pastors don't model this to the congregation, it's not likely that parents will take up the project and agree with its wisdom, you know, because they're not doing it in church. They're just sort of skipping along, teaching over here, entertaining over there, you know, drama skits and music and whatever else they come up with that entertains the people rather than, rather than sounding down the word of God into your souls. That is to say, catechizing, sounding down the Word of God into your souls. I do want to add some scriptural ballast to what I have been supporting thus far. It's clear that I support the concept of catechizing to having a structured approach to the preaching of God's Word. I feel as though it may be helpful for me to remind you that the title that this spiritual endeavor will take for its public apologetic and recommendation is Roots of Righteousness. And that may be more appealing to some people. And I will be explaining more of what we mean by that, but I will state presently that what we're seeking to do is to aid your life in establishing roots of righteousness, a very biblical and necessary thing for a minister to do. The Word of God says that the resurrected Jesus gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers to His church. He gave them to His church. Here's the church. The church needs something. It is not good for a church to dwell alone. What will I give to the church to be a help for the church so that the bride of Christ can be blessed and happy and can be perfected and prepared for Jesus' return? He has an idea. I will give them apostles. I will give them prophets. I will give them evangelists. I will give them pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, so that they can be trained into ministering to others themselves, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, onto a perfect man, onto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men in their cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive but speaking the truth in love we may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ I wonder if you noticed with me that when we quote these familiar verses out of Ephesians chapter 4, it's impossible to make any sense of what that is speaking of if you leave out the preaching of God's Word. How do you come to the unity of the faith if you don't even know what the faith is? How do you grow up in the knowledge of the Son of God if you have no understanding of what His Word teaches? How do you speak the truth in love? How do you minister to others anything meaningful if you don't know your own Bibles? If you don't even know what the head is thinking, how can you be the body of Christ? And so clearly the ministry's task, its primary task, is to speak 
not down from an elevated position in the sense of a hierarchy, but to intensely and purposely and thoroughly minister the Word of God. And if we wish to, in, to include a locational dimension to this idea of catechizing, as I've already said, it is to echo the voice of God from heaven as He anoints the Word that He has inspired and breathed out into the Scriptures, into the Bibles, into the printed page. It is the calling of God's ministry to preach with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven and to echo to God's people what God wants their hearts to hear, to hear a present truth, as it were, from week to week, which is to say, what is the Spirit saying to the church today? When we think of what is stated in those well-known verses of Ephesians chapter 4, I want to continue to underscore how necessary it is for God's ministry to teach God's Word and to teach it wisely, to teach it thoughtfully, to teach it systematically, to catechize, to have structure, to build from one week to the next, enabling God's people to defend themselves from their own childishness so that they are no longer children in their actions, in their entire being. Meaning, the Word of God comes to help you out of all of your childishness, all your sort of human broken habits, you know, even from licking your plate, to emotional childishness, to which is not a whole lot different, but attitudinal childishness, etc. Even a childish attitude of Doctrine divides. We don't need doctrine, we just need love. And therefore, what we need is just a nice, warm, friendly environment that entertains us and makes us feel so tickled from week to week that we want to come back to get a little more of that behind our ears. That's childish. To not realize, no, we need to discipline ourselves and be taught God's Word. Because otherwise, we will be led by the Pied Pipers who with cunning craftiness lie in wait to deceive the silly, whether it's the silly women or the silly men anymore, who let people just jump in through the windows and carry them about with every wind of doctrine. If we go to the end of chapter 3 of the epistle to the Ephesians, we were already introduced to the church at the end of chapter 3. Verse 21 says, "...unto the Father be glory..." In the church, by Jesus Christ, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now, how can you make sense, as you're reading through the epistle to the Ephesians, before you get to chapter 4 and verses 11 through whatever, you, wherever you want to stop. In my case, I went to verse 15. How would you make sense of what is stated in the end of chapter 3, without God's ministry. In other words, I'm trying to underscore how necessary catechizing is. Because how are we going to bring glory to the Father in the church? That's what it says. Unto the Father be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all the ages. That includes the 21st century. World without end. Amen. What kind of glory will be in an untaught church? What kind of glory will be in a church that doesn't know the Word of God? That may have excitement, that may have activity, that may have energy, that may have loudness, that may have friends, that may have community. 
But what kind of glory will it be? It might turn out to be strange fire. It might turn out to be carnal, or we could say Corinthian glory. He said, your glorying is not good to the Corinthians because it isn't biblical, because it's your version of religion. And so how are we going to ensure that the glory that this assembly brings to God is a glory that he will acknowledge, unlike Cain's offering, that he did not accept? Do you, do you understand what I mean? The only way we'll know is if we're experiencing what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, that he gave the ministry to teach the Word of God so that your glorying can be good because you're walking in the Word of the truth of the Gospel and bearing its fruit. Because the ministry is not holding back anything that is profitable for your soul. It is giving you a whole counsel ministry. At the end of chapter 2 of this same epistle, we read the following words that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Would the upper room Christian assembly desire for that to be true of themselves? Would you like to have something that sounds like that be a church that's built upon a foundation that's worth talking about? It goes on to say, in whom, that is Jesus, all the building fitly framed together groweth onto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Would the Upper Room Christian Assembly desire to be a holy temple for the Lord? Would it desire to be an habitation of God by the Spirit? Suppose you don't attend the Upper Room Christian Assembly and you hear these teachings. Would you desire for that to be true of the church you do attend or a church you might attend? The question before all hearers is this. How would you achieve that without being catechized? How do you know what the foundation is unless it's taught? Is the foundation just there because you show up? Is it the literal foundation of the building? Is it just a creed? that has some historic place in church history? In other words, well, of course we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets because I heard something about an apostle creed and I go to a Christian church, so that foundation is there. But if you don't even know what it says, which I will say with a footnote, I'm not necessarily advocating the apostles' creed as such. I'm not against it, by the way, but I'm not saying that's the instrument of all instruments to study. I'm just trying to state that where would you get the idea or what do you think this foundation is all about? It's the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's their teaching. You're familiar, aren't you, with the biblical warning of participating in a religious setting that claims to be Christian but only has a form of godliness and does not operate in the power. It lacks the energy or the power. It lacks whatever might be, in other language, a drawing feature. It's not dry. It's powerful. It's moving. It's an experience. And some might think, yeah, well, I don't want to go to catechizing because that's sort of drifting into an outward formalism and you're likely to get away from reaching the people with the power and with that sort of 
multi-dimensional experience that comes to your ears and your eyes and vibrates in your being and it is that that makes church exciting for the youth and for everybody and you might think of that you know warning along those lines well once again I'm trying to bring to your ears the idea that yes Paul says that if there's a church that begins to have the form without the power he says you should turn away but what about a church or what about a set of affairs within an era of Christian expression where they deny the form but speak about all the power would that not also be problematic what if you're satisfied with having little interest in the forms of sound doctrine because in your estimation at least we have the power and you know we are a non-cessationist church we believe in the baptism in the holy spirit and the operation of the gifts i don't i know that they're not in excess in this assembly they're not abused but i'll use that general territory to make a statement one could become satisfied with tongues and interpretations and prophecies and sharing special songs and praying for the sick and seeing people saved and just general joy, you know, charismatic worship and all the rest of it, you know. And you're getting so much of this power, as it were, that you feel like you don't need the form. And I'm just trying to query your souls as to whether or not your ears are able to recognize that yes you are to turn away from that which has only the form and denies the power but you also need to be aware of the danger if you flip that coin and only pay attention to one side and in this case you deny the need for the form and all you care about is do we seem to have the power do we seem to have the love do we seem to have like the brotherhood and the friendship so why do we need to be categorized that's kind of dry and boring well first of all it doesn't have to be boring I'll be making that point a little bit but secondly even if it was boring by your estimation you know I mean you need to eat your vegetables whether or not you think they're boring or you won't be healthy one more statement from the epistle to the Ephesians about the church and that is what we read at the end of chapter 1 we read that the Father has put all things under the feet of Jesus and given him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him that filleth all in all what I'm pointing out to you in support of the need to literally catechize to thoroughly purposefully sound out the word of god and its teaching to god's people in support of that idea what i'm showing you is you have chapter four which speaks about the ministry and says so many things about its call to teach and i'm just broadening that concept to state it's not like it just shows up right there at the end of chapter 3, at the end of chapter 2, at the end of chapter 1. He's talking about in all these places what the church is supposed to do. In the end of chapter 1, the church is, to, is supposed to experience the authority and the governance of its head. Jesus Christ has been set by the Father to be the head of the church. 
And as I've already asked you, if the church does not know what the head is thinking, how can it be an obedient body? Well, I'll ask the question. Are there good reasons not to categorize the church? It's a fair question. Are there good reasons not to catechize the church? Well, my first response will be the following. To basically say, no, there's no good reason not to catechize the church. And my response will be no more difficult than simply reading a passage to you. Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 14. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How are you going to have a relationship with God and know how to talk to God and know how to believe anything that God offers you if you don't even know what to believe? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And who is doing the sending? God is sending ministry. That's Ephesians 4. He sends His ministry to be a part of what church is. You know, when you come to church, I know there's lots of members. There aren't as many pastors and teachers as there are members, but have people forgotten when God establishes a church and brings all these people together? He sends them ministry. And it, He sends them, according to what is written right here, to preach to them, to tell them things that they need to hear so that they can establish a relationship with God and believe Him about His prohibitions and His promises. And in the mind of the biblical authors, they feel like this is a beautiful dimension to going to church. This is a wonderful part of what it is to be a part of a church. It's not the part that's boring. It's not the part where you start watching your watch and hoping it's over. It's not the part when Brother William stands up and you say, oh boy, we're in for a Lulu now because this will likely go an hour and a half or two hours. No, according to the scriptures, it says how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But here's a reason why one might not want to be catechized, and that is if you don't want to hear the truth. That may seem like a rather unfair jab because it is almost tautological. It's almost like stating the obvious. But I'm going to remind you, the Bible says, no, the churches will get to a place, some churches are going to get to the place where they don't want catechizing, and it's not because it's not necessary, or it's boring, or it's dry, or it's whatever. It's because they don't want to hear the truth. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. When anything near, let's say, Westminster Confession of Faith or the Three Forms of Unity, in certain circles, anything that approximates that will bring about an allergic reaction. I mean, very seriously. I don't expect it will be true for any of you presently, but I know it's the case in the broader Pentecostal charismatic world. And I don't, you know, put people on various levels. You know what I mean? I don't raise the Reformed or lower the Reformed, you know? I don't raise Pentecostals or lower, lower Pentecostals. That's, you know what I mean? That's not what I'm about. What I'm trying to state, though, is it is an unfortunate characteristic that is somewhat true, that is the stereotype has some truth to it, that 
Pentecostals can be anti-intellectual. They can be more about, as I say, the power, quote-unquote, the glory, quote-unquote, without even knowing if the glory is good. Is the glory good? What you're doing? Falling under the Spirit, barking like dogs, laughing your head off, or whatever else you're doing. You know, dancing before the Lord, you know, in your drama skits or whatever. Is, is that okay? I mean, I'm not saying whether it is or isn't, but can you defend it from the Scriptures? Does anybody even care? Do you even care? Do pastors even teach what you practice to try to establish it? How about your holidays? Does anybody even care what you're doing, whether it's biblical or not? A little bit of speaking down, not down at you. But a little bit of speaking down of the voice from heaven might be somewhat prophetic and start addressing some of these idols in the church. But a good reason not to catechize would be if the church doesn't want to hear the truth. They don't want sound doctrine. They want what they want. <laughs> in other words, after their own lust, they want what they want. They will get what they want. After their own lust, they heap to themselves. Not really teachers, by the way. I mean, they're teachers. I mean, they're stand in the place of where teachers should be, but they're not, they're not operating as, as biblical teachers because they're just itching the ears. They're entertainers. They're felt need satisfiers. They're seducers, really. I mean, you get in that world and you're already leaning toward literal seduction. Don't be surprised when that minister commits adultery. I'm serious. Because when you don't teach God's word and his truth and have that as your obligation, and you're willing to kind of play around at the edges, well, you're inviting a seducing spirit into the church and into your own psyche. And they turn away from the truth and they'd rather hear fables. Jesus speaks about this sort of thing. Here's another good reason, in other words, why you wouldn't want to be catechized. Jesus speaks of it. I'm going to give it to you out of the English Standard Version. It's found in Matthew 13. If your heart is grown dull, that's how it's translated in the ESV. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears, they can barely hear. With their eyes, they can barely see. They have closed their eyes so that they cannot see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand in their heart, nor turn so that I would heal them. That's Matthew 13. Verses 15 so far. You know a good reason why catechism of any form is of little interest to a church? is because they're, they're dull themselves. You know, somebody might think, well, that form of teaching is sort of boring. What about the idea that maybe you are spiritually boring? What about the idea that you have grown boring before God? You're neither hot nor cold, or maybe you are cold, but maybe you're just lukewarm. Amen. I won't stress that too much, but it's right there for you to see. That there are people that just don't have a hunger and thirst for God's Word. I've, I've experienced this my entire life. I'm not, like, upset. I mean, I, in a sense I am, but I'm saying I'm not defeated by it. But it's the truth. So many people I've met. You know, I don't want to shake you up by saying, are you yet one of them? So many people I've met. Oh, they like me to a degree. They come to church. I'm not picking on visitors, but I've seen it mostly in visitors, to tell you the truth. They have no clue what I'm doing, which tells me that your church doesn't teach. And you know nothing about church history, because churches that were worth going to used to teach. And I can prove it from their catechisms, which if you were to open it up, um, the you is rhetorical, if you were to open up, you wouldn't know what to do with it. And yet, little children used to learn these things by rote. 
and we had a better overall society, by the way. But even if we didn't, I mean, we, you will, of course. But I'm saying, I don't even, I care about society, but what I'm trying to say is I care about your soul. I'm not so much trying to change the United States, you know what I mean? As such, I'm saying that everybody will do better, including yourself, because you're a more serious person. No, this people's heart has grown dull. They, they, they've closed their eyes, you know? Like, we're not, you know, what is pastor doing today? He isn't giving us a rah-rah session, so I'm not that interested. You know, I intend to minister these teachings, I'll say it this way, with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which doesn't mean you have to raise your voice or I'm, I am under an obligation to make it funny and exciting and super interesting and, you know, multimedia and all the rest of it. What I am saying, and I'm going to get to this observation in just a minute, I am saying that I intend to minister these messages in an appreciably engaging fashion. But I want you to know, I want you to know something about me. As far as I'm concerned, I ought to be able to come up here and just share passages with you and just make comments on them. And honestly, you should be on the edge of your seat listening. I honestly believe that. And if you think I'm exaggerating, let me add this feature to it. I'm not stating that you would be on the edge of your seat 24-7 because there's always something to hear from God. That's true enough. But I'm not saying, because I'm being serious when I say that. On the edge of your seat in church. I don't know that you can keep that up 24-7. You've got things to do and you just get tired. You need to break, break away and take a rest. But I'm saying, if you have the right view of church and the right view of ministry and the right view of the possibilities, and if you honored God, which I'm not saying you don't, but let me speak. If you honor God and you love His place and you want it to be the place of God, it wouldn't be a bad idea to acting like you actually believe it, so to speak. And maybe God will take notice because maybe He's bored with His churches. But the point being is, if we come to this place and the ministry is simply opening up the Word of God, don't you get blessed when Brother Stephen reads the Word of God? It's just so refreshing just to hear it read and to see what God does. He says, I came not with excellency of speech. Stephen read it today. I said, yeah, and you don't need to. Necessarily, you need to read the Word, you know? I don't think he chose it that way. And Don't take me any way except, isn't God's Word wonderful? That's all I'm saying. It's always speaking. It's always making a point if you have an ear to hear it. But if you close your eyes and you close your ears and you don't find the preaching interesting as a consequence and you're on your clock or you're bored or you fall asleep or whatever, as they say, that's on you. Jesus says in verse 16, just following what I just read out of verse 15, he said, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say unto you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I believe some portion of that should happen every time the church gathers and God's word is ministered. And evidently, Jesus feels like you should be on the edge of your seat to hear things that prophets and righteous men over the centuries have longed to hear and didn't hear. And you have the privilege of just having it dispensed in bucketfuls. And you know what happens? Did you ever notice this? What chapter am I in? Do you remember? Matthew 13. Matthew 13 starts in verse 15 and says, Some people don't want to listen. They've grown dull. Verse 16 says, But you're different. Your eyes see, your ears hear. You appreciate what you're receiving. So then we get verse 16, and it reads like this. Hear then 
Because you're different, then let me give you the parable of the sower. And let me speak to you about four different types of people and what happens in their lives when the Word of God is preached. Let me reinforce the basic principle I just set forth. Some people find the seed of God's Word sort of dull, boring, just like a black little seed on the ground. Who cares? Let the birds take it away. What do I care? Other people prepare their hearts to receive that Word deep down. They have what the Bible calls honest and good hearts. In other words, spiritually prepared hearts. And they bring forth fruit in its season. Some even a hundredfold. But still under this response of why might you not want to catechize the church and dealing with the idea of, well, if you don't want to hear the truth, I'll remind you that there are in religious circles, as there always have been, there are Amaziahs. Sometimes they're members in the church. Sometimes they're fellow ministry. Not in this assembly, thanks be to God, but I've experienced it. I don't experience it presently, but I've experienced it over the years. Amaziahs that tell the Amoses, stop preaching this. Leave this area. You're bothering me. You're bothering my life. You're stepping on my toes. I guess you know what I'm talking about in Amos 7. Amaziah, who's like a priest himself, some sort of religious leader, he tells Amos, who is declaring God's word from his belly, he says, leave this area and go back to Judah and eat your bread there and prophesy there, but stop prophesying up here in Bethel. We don't want to hear it. Well, if he said, I want to begin to catechize the northern tribes and I'm going to use the Westminster Confession of Faith as a structure make sure we cover all the ground it's a worthy structure from godly men and I'm going to work through either the confession or the catechism so we're either going to be asking questions and answering them and talking about the chief end of men and the scriptures and every discipline and we're going to we're going to bring you through an understanding of God's word over the next couple of years. You know what Amaziah says? We're not interested. We're not interested. Go down to Judah somewhere. Go, go to one of those Presbyterian churches where they like that kind of thing. We're not interested. We're charismatic. You know, something like that. Well, the way that Amos characterizes what Amaziah said to him, which you don't exactly get, you know, unless you get into the Hebrew, but, but Amos says that Amaziah is telling him, in verse 16 he says, you're basically telling me, don't drop the word up here in the northern tribes, in Bethel, which is quickly becoming Beth-Avon, going from the house of God to the house of sin. Literally, it was renamed Beth-Avon. Well, by God it was. It was named, renamed by God uh, as Beth-Avon, the, the house of sin. It used to be the house of God. Some churches have gone from Bethel to Beth-Avon. And why? Because they don't want the word of God dropped anymore. We're, we're talking about sowing the word of God. And, and that's what we do. Catechizing is like spreading out the seed of God's Word. Well, I want to give you a third reason why you might not want to be catechized. And that is if the preacher does not have anything interesting to say. And I'm going to acknowledge that that's a possibility. And I'm going to acknowledge that some catechizing is probably along those lines. And I'm going to acknowledge that if it is, I get it. It's a little tough to sit through week after week for a half hour, an hour, whatever, even 10 minutes. Someone who has no anointing, who doesn't know their topic, 
who maybe knows it but can't treat it effectively, that is to say he doesn't have a homiletic capacity to translate what he knows in his head to your ears in a way that's somewhat engaging. Remember in the letter to the Hebrews, the author complains that he had many things to say, but it was difficult for him to utter it because, well, they were dull of hearing. The Greek term is nothros. It means sluggish, and some translations have that. They were sluggish of hearing. They were kind of bored and tired and exhausted. We've already talked about that problem. We talked about those that have grown dull in their hearts. In the King James, it's fat, but in the ESV, it's you've grown dull. You don't want to hear. Your ears are fat. You know what I mean? You're just lazy, fat, and indifferent, right? Here, he's saying, I have lots of things to say, so let's think of catechizing. There's a lot to cover. Lots of things to say, but the problem is the listeners are dull of hearing. What I'm acknowledging is it's also possible for you to have lots of things to hear, but it's hard to get through it because I'm dull of speaking. And that can sometimes happen. Indeed, the only other time that this word nothros is used, I think in the entire New Testament, but certainly in the epistle to the Hebrews, makes an interesting point for us. It's found in chapter 6 and verse 12. It says, don't be slothful. Even in the King James, it's slothful there. So it could read, if they translated it with the same English word, it would be, don't be dull, but followers of those who through faith and patience or endurance inherit the promises. And I'm using that idea to acknowledge that if your preaching is so dull that I can't even follow you, then that agreement doesn't work, right? And so you remember what was said of Jesus by the officers that were sent to arrest him in John chapter 7. They said, never man spake like this man. And they meant it positively. But you might have the experience as I did when I had a history professor in college of whom that remark could be made. Never a man, none other my professors spake like this man and it wasn't commendable. He was so boring, so monotoned. There could be some members in a church that could say, I'm having a difficulty with this catechizing because never a man spake like this man. He puts me to sleep. I can't follow him because he's so dull. He has many things to say, but he's dull of preaching, and I'm having a difficult time ratcheting up my hearing. So I understand that. And that's a, that's a legitimate part of our agreement, if you will. What the preacher wants to seek to achieve by the Spirit of God, as our brother read today, not with words of men's wisdom, which man's wisdom teacheth, but in the Holy Spirit and in power, which again doesn't have to mean you yell or run around or claim a great anointing right in the moment, but it just means the Holy Spirit is leading it. What we want to achieve is to open your eyes to behold wondrous things out of God's Word, because that's possible. That's what we're going to seek to do in catechizing God's church, is to open your eyes to behold wondrous things in the Word of God. This is to simply follow the example of my Savior and yours, Jesus Christ, who in Luke 24, it was said of his ministry that he opened up the Scriptures to his hearers, and they said, not, 
Well, yes, he opened up the scriptures and he talked at length and it went on and on and on. He had many things to say, but man, I never heard anybody who was so monotone and so boring. Never did this one who claims to be the Christ. No man ever spake like this man. Man, that wasn't very interesting. No, quite to the contrary. They said, when he opened up the scriptures to us, our hearts burned within us. I am not um, binding myself or obliging myself to have to achieve a burning sensation in your soul every time I preach. I'm not going to place that burden on my, on my mind and my spirit. But I am acknowledging that as the scriptures say, God's word is more to be desired than much fine gold. It's sweeter than honey in the honey cone. And therefore, that should be something that you experience, see, and taste when God's ministry speak the word distinctly and give the sense and help you to understand what is in God's precious treasure trove known as the scriptures.